Welcome to the Horsewise Podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. Matt Evans of Austin Equine Hospital. Matt is a veterinarian, stand-up comedian, landscape painter, master gardener, and all-around Renaissance man. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Matt, thank you for being on the Horsewise podcast, and I just want to introduce you kind of quickly to our listeners. So Dr. Matt Evans is a veterinarian extraordinaire. I first met him way back in 2004. Right when it was just he and Dr. Ogan and a really tired little vet mobile. <laughs> there was no clinic. And uh, from there, I just really enjoyed Dr. Evans, how he's helped out the horses at Lope, but also just as a, as a friend and an inspiration. Uh, Matt is also a very talented landscape painter. He is a stand-up comedian. He's a master gardener. He's a father. I think he's a superhero. And so I thought everyone would enjoy getting to know him. So welcome, Matt. Well, thank you. And that last part was not true. It's not true at all. Are you sure? You're an yeah, Instagram. You're also an Instagram. Yes. Uh, what would be the word? Titan. Yes, Instagram yeah. Titan. I'm up to 130 followers. Wow. Is, pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty amazing. And yeah. you have, what is your Instagram um, it is Evans Paintings and Stuff. Yeah, everybody because, check that out because yeah. Matt not only posts photos of his incredible paintings, but he also does these incredible like humorous essays with each post. So every time you go, you get more than just an image. You also get some kind of a of a just an entertaining glimpse into Matt's mind, which right. is a twisted place, yeah, but a exactly. fun place. It's a, it's a dark place. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a lot of times the essay isn't even about the painting. You know, it's just like whatever I was thinking about when I posted that painting or That's whatever right. silly idea. Came. Yeah, yeah I love fun. that. Yeah. I love that. So tell tell the listeners just a little bit about how you became a veterinarian because it wasn't as typical a path. Right. Um, you know, I've read the James Harriet books, which if y'all haven't read those, you should just like stop listening and then <laughs> read all four and then you can come back, you right, know, like right. a couple hours. Um, no, and I was sold on being a veterinarian, but I really wanted to be James Harriet. I wanted to live in the Yorkshire Dales and I wanted to, um, have his life, but, um, which is unreasonable. Um, but then I, uh, in undergrad, I majored in wildlife fishery science. Um, and so I worked for a guy who um, did research on brucellosis vaccines, um, on elk and um, coyotes and wolves in Yellowstone. And I really wanted his job. Um, so I went to vet school, but then I kind of quickly realized that if I wanted his job, I had to murder him to get his <laughs> job. He's like the only person doing that. And so um, they introduced you to everything in vet school and uh, goats and pigs. And um, I had worked in a small animal clinic, and I never really thought that's what I was going to do. Um, so I, I didn't really want to be a small animal veterinarian. Um, but then they introduced you to horses, and I really liked them. So um, yeah, I was uh, immediately taken with them. Um, and wanted to know how I could get more involved with that and was told by a number of people that if you weren't raised around horses, you can't work on them. And so then I just had to. Right. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I had no choice. So my entire career has been despite like three now dead people. Right. That's yeah. great. It's just defiant immaturity. Really. Yeah, it has right. been like a cornerstone for you. Yeah, I can relate to around. that. No, it really, it was a challenge. Um, and I spent a lot of time in veterinary school. I had some classmates who really helped me. 
Um, I worked, I feel like, pretty hard, not as hard as learning veterinary medicine, but pretty hard learning horsemanship, mm-hmm. um, where to stand and, and uh, how to behave around the animals and how to behave around the people, too, so they couldn't pick up on the fact that I was a nimrod. Right. Um, how to fake it. Yeah, seem how to confident. fake it. Yes, right. exactly. Right. Um, and so it was a chore, and I spent a, a bunch of time in veterinary school, and, and like a, every break, every summer break, every time I had time, I was uh, with a different equine veterinarian riding along. Wow. Um, and so it, I put a lot of effort into it. And the more I saw, the more I liked it. That's um, great. Yeah. It was a good and so you had no real background in horses. And then when the rotation came up where you were working with them, they fascinated mm. you. What was it about them? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know. Their sarcasm. The sarcasm. <laughs> I, do, I do feel like uh, in a court, I don't know the, if I knew this then, but I just uh, find um, horses a lot of fun to be around. They have a ton of personality and they just ooze it out of every pore and they give off tons of body language, lots of feedback. But I mean, other animals do as well. So I don't know, although I feel like horses do more than others. Um, but uh, they're just large and um, amazing and beautiful and they come with such a long history of interaction with man and are such an important part of um, our history you know it's you know from the southwest and texas but all of mankind is really tied to horses and so it just seemed like this really deep area that i wanted to be part of right um, i wanted to work with them and it and honestly it, maybe if they had been like yeah you can try it sure I might have tried it, and but God, yeah, this the, is hard. the fact that they it. challenged yeah. me, and then I really got into it. And then once you got into working with them, then you get to know them better, and it um, it really draws you in. Do you think the fact that you didn't grow up with horses or didn't have a preconceived idea that maybe you were more open to noticing things that other people didn't? Um, I definitely think that I, I would see vet school classmates taking things for granted that I just was amazed by everything about horses, how they interacted with each other and um, how we had to interact with them. Um, so I, I think that there was a draw to that, whereas they just probably took it for granted. Right. Um, you were like, wow, they can't swallow or right, they can't do this right, or whatever exactly. it was. Yeah, right. the fact that they can't vomit. Right, everybody vomit, else just rolling I mean. their yeah, eyes. Of course they can yeah. swallow. They can't, they can't swallow. Yeah, <laughs> Otherwise exactly. they, would be, they would be great. That's the esophageal obstruction. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah this, that's a problem. Call us if your horse can't swallow. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a really um, slick podcast interviewer. Yeah. I'm sure you can. You're kind of worried I'm going to trip you up with right. trick questions <laughs> like that. I was going to let that go. I'm glad you pointed that <laughs> out. Um, no, yeah. So all that kind of stuff was fun um, to to learn. Another thing, I think uh, a lot a lot of my classmates they liked one type of horsemanship. They liked hunter jumpers or they mm-hmm. liked western horses because that's what they were raised around. They were, could be pretty prejudiced. Not you know not in a bad way. They just like they really wanted to work on cutting horses because that was uh, familiar. Yeah, um, and I just thought all horses were great, so I haven't ever developed those. Uh, I like to work on Arabians and thoroughbreds, and I like horses. I like ponies, and I like miniature donkeys, and I like ex race horses, and I like whatever because um, I just didn't. I wasn't raised around them, so I don't have those those notions. And I'm sure my classmates have gone on to their whatever their careers are, and they have to be open minded and I'm sure right. they fall in love with whatever they work on. Right. But, yeah. Right. No, I agree. I think that's really interesting. And. As you're talking, I'm realizing one of the reasons I always felt maybe an affinity with you, besides the fact that you were donating large percentages of your services right. to my charity, that'll, which that'll draw that, that would definitely yeah. endear you to me. But I came into working with horses at a just different way, particularly ex-race horses. So I was not a professional trainer, certainly not a competitive rider. I was what I would say a minimally passable rider. And I got drawn into this work through a long series of coincidences that I 
don't bore my my listeners with at this time. <laughs> but I didn't know how to work with them. So I would just look at the racehorses when they came and I'd be like, well, he seems to be tense about this, but relaxed about this, or right. when I approach him this way. So I didn't have a sense of, well, this is how you train horses, or this is how he should look. And because of that, I think I was able to observe things and notice things that maybe others, people who are more definitely, quote, qualified or mm -hmm. more experienced might have missed. And I also really always got into their personalities. Mm -hmm. They do have like a, do you remember Storm the French horse? Oh, he used yeah, to sneer at you yeah, and all yeah. of that. And so uh, that was something that I would get really intrigued by. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how to approach this horse to ride him, but he's sarcastic or this horse, he really, he really prefers that you sort of handle him with kid gloves. He wants mm -hmm. to feel like he's being waited on. Like I would get into all of those different right. things. Yeah, it is fun. Not, you know, how much of that we uh, apply to the horses and how much of it is really there is hard to know, but I, it, it does make it fun to try to read their personalities and read what they're up to and kind of assign them those, those traits. Those traits. And, um, you know, like everything I do, it's always, I'm, you know, humor just fills like what I'm trying to do. So I'm going to look at the fun side of why that horse is behaving that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it's real obvious that they just don't want to be around a vet. You know, <laughs> they're, like, like, they're like, here's what I have to tell you. It's not super complicated. Yeah, they hate they, me. They hate you. <laughs> they hate you. And they're like, you better tell me a joke or make me laugh. Right. And that's it. That's uh, Speaking of laughing and horses, like um, a lot of times I feel like with a horse who's needle shy or doesn't want to be around a vet um, or is anxious, um, if you can make the people around uh, you laugh, then the horse... Um, you can just watch the horse calm down. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and so just say they read that body language and uh, laughing people are not dangerous people. No. Um, they just can't be at the same time. And so uh, that, that's been very useful. Very um, just useful. Just to, to be able to make your technician chuckle. If the technician chuckles and, every, and you laugh. Right. The, the client's is, not so worried. Right. Yeah. right. And, yeah, it gives off confidence. And oh, that's so, great. Yeah. Um, but they are they're a riot. They, yeah, they are. Yeah. I find horses to be very... They have very engaging personalities, and I'm sure we all humanize them to some extent. Right. But I've worked with some odd horses, and because they're coming off the track, maybe they've run for a long time. Mm. Those horses tend to be characters. The war right. horses like Zooper, yeah. you remember Zooper, yeah. or Tulsa, who right. came back, and of course Storm, and mm -hmm. all those guys. And I just find that if you pay attention to those little elements in their personalities, then you end up responding in more subtle ways mm -hmm. to some of the cues they put off that right. are maybe quieter. Yeah. And they appreciate that. Absolutely. They appreciate that. Yeah. And it's like, it's as if you're complimenting them on their great conversation. <laughs> They're like, oh, you totally get me. Right. And so it can develop trust. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have as many skills as I did that back then, the ability to establish rapport and trust with the animal is important as well right. as safety. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's, that's interesting cool. that you're bringing that up. Yeah, they, I'm sure they have to appreciate it that they don't have to give as overt signs for you to know, oh, she, she didn't, you know, I don't want her right there right now. Right, or, right. I'm really nervous about this. Mm -hmm, or, I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I need to move my foot this way, but I, I don't speak English. I don't know how to tell <laughs> her to help me that. Right. She doesn't speak my language. So, yeah. yeah. I'm picking up on those subtle signs. So uh, one of my biggest memories of early on when you were first helping us out, you and Dr. Ogan, was Spider's tracheotomy oh, yeah. and his spider bite. Yep. And I'm going to tell a quick background on that, and then I'm going to ask you about the tracheotomy. Um, so Spider had, was a young horse that we had, 
and uh, he'd come, he'd been donated by his breeder. He was still a colt at that time, very sweet colt, meaning uh, to my listeners who don't know, he was not gelded yet, so he was still uncut, as we say in that mm-hmm. very elegant terminology. <laughs> and I was riding a horse kind of late afternoon, and my husband Tom was pulling up the driveway, and he honked at me, and he said, something's wrong with Spider. And I'm like, oh, whatever, you're not mm-hmm. a horse guy. And I went out, and he's, his whole head was just swelling, and he had the classic pinprick needle marks. Right, you said spider bite, but it was a snake bite. It was a rattlesnake. Oh, right, right. a rattlesnake, I'm sorry. Yeah, and it was just giant, kind Mm -hmm. of the swelling was so fast. Right. So anyway, by the next morning, you guys came out to see him. You'd been coaching me all during the night about how to keep aware that we might have to put rubber hoses up his airway. We might have to do all these things. And he made it through, and you guys came out. And I remember you came running out. You had your, your flip phone then. And you were taking a photo. You're like, this is the worst snake bite I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, oh, he's so much better now. And he's like, no, this is the worst. I'm going to send this to my buddy at A&M. <laughs> and so you and Damon then started talking about whether or not to do a tracheotomy to be safe. And then you ended up saying, oh, I want to do it. Because it was, I'm sure you'd done tracheotomies at vet school. Right. But it would have been your first field Yeah, I think, it, I think it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the first one since I'd gotten out of school. So oh, wow. a good opportunity to help him and to get, yeah. yeah, which is, you know, was really great that Lope always provided those opportunities to. We were happy to yeah. do that. And so what struck me about that was that you were totally like, it was just like the, like, it was the best thing ever. <laughs> like I had ice cream for you, this opportunity to do tracheotomy. Right. So can you explain to our listeners, like, why it is that vets are so freakish that way? Like that yeah. that would be seen as just awesome. Right. Um, I mean, if you don't like, you know, a little bit of that kind of activity, surgery and stuff, you probably shouldn't <laughs> go to vet school. So you have to start by like liking to pick scabs. So if you like that, then you can kind of move up from there. Um, but I think it's, it's hard to remember like past me, but my guess is I knew that um, performing an emergency uh, tracheotomy would, would be... Um, important and it was something that I hadn't done since school and so an opportunity to do one um, in a, was a, in a low stress situation with a client who was supportive and I, and I you know with uh, Dr. Ogan there um, to help if I was having an issue it was probably just a great opportunity to, to um, learn how to do that and I've had to do a lot since um, and I remember one time I had to do one on a horse who the, the client hadn't called until the horse was in lateral recumbency because it couldn't breathe oh so I'm like gosh. laying on my stomach in a round pen putting in a trach oh and so gosh. to be able to do one standing in the daytime with a nice client really was a good opportunity so I'm sure fun. I was excited to like yes this is a great chance to, right. to help this horse and to practice and, and you could see the benefits. That was one of the most memorable experiences to me about the vet ethos because I was very squeamish when I first started lope and mm-hmm. I'm still I'm better I'm a lot better now but there's still certain things that I'm like oh, that's a lot yeah. of blood or smell. Yeah that's right I remember we removed a baby tooth one time and yeah, you didn't, I was you did little, not appreciate I that. I was just like oh man that's a lot of information <laughs> for Lynn. Right. And uh, but with that I remember just your face and how how excited you were and of course it was fun for you and right. I was like how do I get an attitude like that like that is really cool huh. and it's something about to the scientific mind where it's not about blood or gore. It's really more about this is part of the machinery and we can actually fix this. We can, right. we can make sure that this horse will be able to breathe and mm-hmm. it'll be great. Right. So I, I thank you for that. You yeah. were very inspiring. And oh, because good. you were so humorous about it, I could relate to it. You weren't 
being cyborgian like right. now is when we tracheotomy you're like this is going to be so much fun <laughs> and i was just like what a freak he is but he's a fun exactly. one he's yeah. a fun freak we're gonna have a good time we're gonna have a good time a, cutting a small hole yeah. in this poor horse's neck yeah <laughs> and i had to actually i think help assist yeah with that so i was learning how to do that too and uh that was pretty interesting for me actually yeah you know, I just didn't, I didn't look so much. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's fun to be something that you've only, you know, you've done only dreamed of. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, all of us dream I've of I've read about this in books. <laughs> right, right, right. Holding horse's head up while they cut into his throat. It's so amazing. That's fun. I, yeah. Well, I guess I get to be James Harriet a little bit in that way that you, yes. And, yeah. Right. And humor and help the animal. And I was excited and that's yeah. fun. Yeah. It is really cool. Yeah. Um, I actually was inspired by those books as well. And when I, I did write a book about my experiences at Lope and I remember the beginning of one of those books, he's basically, he's, he's like freezing cold. He's working with a cow. What right. was it? Was it a cow that was having trouble? With... Yeah. I'm sure it was like in a dystocia. He was always pulling calves and And he was just, it was freezing and there was like the, the one bucket of water right. that was like cold and only half a bucket right and he was like why did I why am why did I do this why am I in this career right and I opened the book my book with sitting up with spider nursing him through the snake bite Uh, going why am I doing this? And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. I'm actually having right. a James Harriet moment, <laughs> even though it's, it was much more fun to read about it than to actually experience it that, that yeah, day. But absolutely. It, it was really interesting. So, uh, Harriet, um, he, at some point he wrote, he had like the flu um, and he was on call and he was like staring at the phone, dreading getting a page. Oh, right. um, and when I read that the first time around before being a veterinarian, I just, it flew right over my head, you know, right. and then, to, to be a veterinarian and be tired and stressed and be on call and like staring at your pagers like, oh, he wrote about it. Right? He, he explained it very well. Yes. I just didn't get it. You didn't get it. You just <laughs> glossed over that part. Right. Didn't make any sense to me. And well. for how many years was it just the two of you where you were constantly on call, essentially? Yeah. Um, he started the practice in 04 and then I joined um, in 05 and... Um, we were all ambulatory. You know, we shared one ambulatory vehicle. <laughs> a tired for, ambulatory vehicle. Yes, it was very sad Tahoe <laughs> for um, the better part of a year. And then we thought we had lost our minds when we bought a second uh, vehicle. And we both gradually kind of worked up to working full time. Uh, and that was in 2008. And then we opened the clinic in 2008. So we had, we had Dr. Joyce, but she was always on call for surgery. And right. so Damon and I split call until our first intern was 2011. Wow. So it was a, it was a fair it was a long road. time. Yeah. yeah, it was a long road. Long time to be on call every other week. Right, right. Non-stop. You guys would get, you had a really wide range when you started. I remember because yeah, we, we were a good 45 minutes away and you were seeing clientele that were even further out in Bastrop as mm-hmm. well as people that were closer into Austin. So. Yeah, because we were based just kind of in central Austin. So we went in every direction. Wow. We just did what we had to do. What you had to do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit about how your your veterinary practice, you personally, has kind of evolved. Because I know that I think all veterinarians probably start out with a broad interest, unless you've decided to specialize into surgery or internal right. medicine or yeah, something like that. Unless you get right out of school and do a residency. Right. Yeah. And then I've noticed just watching all of the different vets here that everybody seems to gravitate toward things that intrigue them the most. So mm-hmm. can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, being in a big group practice, it's been nice to be able to kind of have an area to focus on because not everybody has to do everything all the time. People can. And so uh, I think it was around 2011, probably when we had our first intern, I went to 
a continuing education that was free that um, one of the drug, company, drug companies put on. Um, and it was on dentistry, and I was already doing a lot of dentistry, and we were, uh, we were trained at A&M by a guy named Dr. Scratchfield, who was considered uh, one of the best people in the field. And we had, uh, A&M have a huge uh, horse population, and then we would also um, work on the horses at the Texas prison system. So you graduate wow. from A&M, and you really know equine dentistry. So I was pretty smug about it. Um, <laughs> but I like to fly and eat and drink for free. So I was Perfect. like, I'm yeah. free for the yeah, continuing education. Great. I'm available. Right. Um, Lucky was, you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. You're, you're gonna, welcome. You're going to love me. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I don't, y'all might want to increase the budget a little bit. I like scotch. Um, and so uh, it was in uh, Michigan State, and so I flew into Detroit, which was all fun, and I got there a little bit late, and they drove me into the class, and I sat down in the class, and um, the guy speaking, Dr. Henry, who was a private practitioner from up in the Chicago or like a Wisconsin area, he was halfway through the anatomy lecture, and I realized that I had no idea what he was talking about. Oh, wow. And um, it, like if you sit down, if I had sat down in a continuing education on like any other part of the horse, like a fetlock arthritis and I walked in in the middle of the anatomy lecture I would have known what they were discussing but I didn't know this dental anatomy um, and so I was like whoa I might be in a lot of trouble I might be behind um, and what had happened was since I graduated in 2003 to 2011 had been some big advances in equine dentistry um, that I'd been unaware of and so I can I, I'm sure I've gone back and uh, reconfigured the thought better than it was, but I thought something to the degree of I either either need to focus on this and get better at it, or I need to stop doing it. Those, oh, are, those wow. are my two choices. Mm. But I can't continue to be ignorant and charge people for dentistry. And right. Um, so he, uh, you know, it was that lab that I learned that I needed to buy a mirror so I could look in the mouth, and that there was such a wow. thing as endodontic disease and periodontal disease. You know, things that um, or really everybody who's doing equine dentistry should know now. And I feel that strongly. So it, that started me on a trip of just doing more continuing education and pursuing every opportunity and, and had some opportunities to go and spend time with some uh, veterinarians who do dentistry at a really high level and just be with them in their practice and see how they practice and, uh, some opportunities to go to A&M and, and spend time, uh, with, uh, Dr. Scratchfield's, uh, current replacement is Dr. Griffin, so I got to observe him working and go read um, CT scans under the radiologist, and it, it's been a good a good trip, and I, I, so slowly over the last, whatever, eight years, I've gone from doing probably like 50% dentistry to doing, I do probably 95% dentistry, wow. and I've started doing advanced cases, kind of learning as I went with continuing education and doing and um, having Dr. Joyce here on staff is a big deal because it allows to have a board certified surgeon allows us to do some things that I would not tackle if I didn't have a board certified surgeon. And so uh, it's been great and um, led, led to here now where I, I probably do a couple of advanced dental procedures a week and do a lot of routine dentistry, which I love. Um, so it's, it's given me a lot of professional uh, fulfillment to focus on that. And junkets as well. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Junkets? Is see, that what you call it when you get to go travel yes, and speak? Yes. Okay. Yes. I didn't know junkets, that. Yeah. I'm not sure what a junket is. Yeah. yeah so, no, it sounds I, like it might be something, you know, more, I don't know, corruptive, but it's not. It's yeah. just a word for that. I, yeah. I used to spend a lot of time in D.C., so when, which is a big junket kind of town. Yeah. And so that's, that was the that's word we used. That's what you call used. it. Like press junket. Yeah, yeah. Press junket. Yeah. All right. Exactly. There you go. There you go. Well, um, yeah, I have had, uh, in the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to go and speak places and I do like to speak publicly it's the whole you know 
I like to mix in a little bit of comedy. I hear people that are really good at dentistry give really boring dental lectures because <laughs> go figure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but but it's like, man, if you could just you know mix in a little bit of entertainment and tighten up, it could be much more interesting. So I like doing that, and I've had an opportunity to go help with some laboratories for both students and veterinarians. And then what I always find is like as soon as I get to talking about it with them, I find you know. I have a lot of information that I've learned and I'm passionate, I have a lot of opinions that I'm passionate about. <laughs> and so like a, a four hour lab will fly by and I'll oh, be like cool. tired, but like, oh, wow, yeah. we're done. That's <laughs> okay. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And now that was a really great kind of segue into talking about stand-up yeah. comedy, <laughs> which you also do with all your spare time. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I was trying to think about this. I don't remember why I wanted to. To start trying stand-up that probably happened in like 13 or 14 around yeah. there I went and um, and actually had I don't know I, I've always loved stand-up comedy and so at some point maybe somebody said you should try it. I'm not I, I really can't remember what prompted me but Austin has a huge um, stand-up mm-hmm. comedy scene and there's open mic nights all over town everywhere um, so it's easy you just show up and sign up and they're in little dive bars and you know on a stage with nobody paying attention um, Perfect. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> no one knows you, <laughs> right? No one knows. No, not a lot of veterinarians hanging out. No, there right? are no no equine vets in town. <laughs> no, no clients around. So I tried, um, and it actually, I didn't the first time through. You know, I wrote some jokes, um, but it, uh, I didn't have a great experience. Like none of I was at such low level open mics that not a lot of the people there were telling funny jokes, which oh. is to be expected that open mics people right. are struggling through, but it was like you would sit through three hours of stand-up uh, comedians and or, you know people trying to and, and not laugh, which was hard. Um, and I also kind of felt like the ones, at least where I was able to get to, because I, like, I didn't want to do the 11 o'clock at night ones, and I, and I, wasn't, I didn't have a name, so I couldn't get the decent open mics. Um, which you wouldn't think there'd be like tears to open mics, but there are. Um, and uh, so the, I would go and like uh, the people, as soon as they would do their set, they would go outside and smoke and drink with their buddies because it was kind of like their social club. And by the time me, the unknown, got on last, it was I would really be telling jokes to an empty room, which is... Wow, that's tough. It's pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so anyways, it was a hard time in, um, in our life too. We were, uh, my wife and I have been foster parents and so... Mm-hmm. Uh, we were fostering, and I can remember the the child we had placed with us at that time was hard. So I was kind of, I needed to be home more, and mm-hmm. also I wasn't in a great place. My jokes were kind of sarcastic, mm-hmm. in, in not a great way. So more it, of a it, harsh way. Yeah, and so yeah. I found that me trying to write comedy didn't bring out like the best in me. It didn't bring mm-hmm. out great thoughts, and then I would go to these crappy bars and tell these crappy jokes to like empty rooms, and I was like, maybe this isn't for for me, right. you know. So I just kind of dropped it, um, and then. Uh, a few years later, I uh, ran into, there's a guy who works for one of the drug companies, um, and um, he's like the sales rep for one of the big drug companies, and I met him, at, I saw him in a meeting, and he, he does this cowboy poetry, um, and he was talking about putting together um, like a vet story night, open mic night, and I'd had probably a few drinks. You know? <laughs> and so, um, so I told him uh, that I had tried stand-up comedy, and, um, and he was like, oh, yes. I'm signing you. I'm yeah, signing you right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> so he, so he, he um, it took him a couple of years to get it organized, but he planned um, at one of our big equine practitioners meeting, he planned an open mic night. Um, and I put together a, a set of horse vet jokes, which was really easy to write because they just, you know, it's the stuff we joke about every day. <laughs> um, and it went well. And so that kind of motivated me 
to it was a big room of like 300 people and they were actually listening and they laughed at my jokes. I think like, I saw some of that. Like someone had oh, yeah, it, somebody right, taped, taped it, right? Yeah. I mean, you slayed yeah. them. Yeah. You killed, you killed <laughs> yeah. the room. Yeah, they, they loved it. Yeah. Um, and so, and you know, a little bit of that's not fair because it's like all your colleagues and friends laughing at jokes. That, I mean, it's so easy to write those kind of, but it, it was motivating. It's like, I want to do more right. of that. And so, yeah, that's where it is now. Um, the hard part is open mic nights still happen in town late at night at dive bars there's right. some really good ones that you can sign up for beforehand like the uh, two comedy clubs in town um the capital city comedy club and the Velveeta room you can sign up for both of those beforehand mm -hmm. but i still don't have like a name in the austin comedy circles which is not, not a surprise i'm not out there every night doing open right. mic nights and so i don't get those routinely um and if you go to those those people who tell jokes there like you might see a few people who are really struggling but you'll see 10 comics in a row that are really working on Jokes. And you're laughing. Oh, you're and, laughing the whole time. Yeah, that's it's great. great. Even if, you know, a lot of those, these guys are like 20 and they're having very 20, 22 year old problems, you right. know. <laughs> but I remember being 22 and it's right. still funny how they're dealing with it. It was like three it. years ago. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't long ago at all. Um, so, uh, that being said, uh, I'm gonna I'm signed up for the funniest person in Austin competition. Oh, cool! Yeah. I didn't know that. And they accepted oh, me because I bought the T-shirt. I agreed to buy a T-shirt, so I got a spot. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. exactly. I spent ten extra dollars, which pretty much guaranteed pretty me shrewd, a spot. Pretty shrewd. Pretty shrewd strategy. <laughs> so Machiavellian. Tomorrow, I find out when my date is. Oh, and so, you got to let us know. Yeah, I'll let you know, and it's we'll like blast a, it on the podcast. Too. Cool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a you know I'll be against like fifteen comedians, and they, they oh, do what? it for. Um, I don't know. They do it all of April. So, and um, yeah, it'll be fun. And I'll be against some people that like actually make a living to some degree as comedians, oh, you know, great. they're like, and so there'll be good jokes told and it'll be fun. And so I've got a set uh, that I've written about. Um, I had some face cancer recently and then that's my always failings, good for a laugh. Yeah. Everybody loves that. Yeah. And then uh, my feelings as a foster parent. So really lighthearted stuff that we're going to cover. <laughs> I should be different than everybody else. You should be. You yeah. should be. Yeah. And then it sounds like, you know, that period when you were, you know, you said there were some challenges with, with your foster child. There was a lot kind of going on. And mm -hmm. then the open mic nights, maybe all like your humor was kind of maybe coming out darker. Yeah. And have you found now that your humor, obviously all humor has a little edge to it. Like right. You don't go, I'm going to tell you a totally Disney joke. Right. And you won't laugh, but you'll feel good about everything. <laughs> right. So there's always a little edge, but mm -hmm. can you explain like that difference? Because I've noticed that the best comedians aren't really super cynical. They're right. just funny. If yeah, that it's makes about, sense. It's about, it's, yeah, it does make sense. Um, I think the thing that changed for me was I was, when I was in kind of that darker place, I was like, what's stupid about this one thing? Right. And now I'm like, what's stupid about me and how I interact with this one thing? What, what, what's wrong? What? Because I always come at things from a little bit different angle, and so mm -hmm. what's silly about that? Mm -hmm. and how can I highlight that? And so like always trying to make me the butt of the joke mm -hmm. it brings it back to a good place where I feel I feel like it's healthy, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just picking on people and picking on me and how I'm interacting with situations or people in weird ways. So. And then that always probably highlights something about that situation that's odd for everybody. So. They right. maybe relate to it, but it's also just fun to laugh at you. Yeah, exactly. It's easy. To, yeah. Everybody's always enjoyed that. Yeah, my whole yeah life. definitely. So, definitely. Yeah, that, that's it's kind good. Of thing that yeah. brings people together generally. And you're like, you're welcome. Yeah. I'm, I'm bringing you together. <laughs> I'm the heel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. It's been good. Yeah. Really good. So I don't expect to make a career out of it, but it's very fun. I enjoy writing jokes, I enjoy the process. So, especially if I have a set coming up, like it, when I jog in the morning, I think of stuff and I'll think of little taglines and funny stuff to say.
And is your, I mean, everybody probably has a different process, but is it, is it kind of just where you, you say you're, you're jogging or you're in that kind of quiet space, right? Mm-hmm. Where there isn't 10,000 other distractions and right. you're just sort of pondering situations in your head. Right. And then do you come up with a, maybe a line or something funny mm-hmm. and then it just goes from there? Or is it more that you sit down and go, I would like to do something about this particular situation? Right. No, it's more that I'm thinking about something and I'll think about something funny, you know, and, and the healthy part of it has been if I'm upset about something, I can put myself in a better mood thinking like, what's funny about this? What's, what's funny about this? Yeah, what right. could I, so if I'm like a, a lot of times shaving, I'll think of stuff and then I'll come in here and jot it down. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then the other thing, I read a, a book and, and the author, and I can't remember his name, he's like a comic from the 80s, but he talked about, he called it his uh, comic third eye. So when um, I'm joking with friends, like, and it could be working and it could be with clients or it could be with friends or whatever, and we're all laughing, um, and I think of something and I say it and the group laughs, um, remembering that, that's a punchline, you know, and then you have to figure out how to make it a setup. To work it into Yeah, exactly, because ah, it's easy to, you know, but like stepping just a little bit back and be like, oh, that's really funny. Right, yeah. right. Like taking something that happened naturally and then going, oh, wait, what's the dynamic there? Right. Or what's that, and how can I build that into? Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Right. Really yeah, good. so he talked, and so I recognized that I should pay attention for those. And I've, some of the stuff, especially the horse vet stuff, is things that I've just been like, we're driving in the car and we're laughing about. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's a big one. That's a big yeah. one. That's a big yeah. one. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. And then I'm just going to, I'm going to totally make an abrupt transition into painting now. And then I'm going to tie it all together because that's right. my brilliance as okay. an interviewer. <laughs> right. You're doing but great. <laughs> I, I am. I'm awesome. <laughs> but uh, tell us about the painting because. I know you started to study several years ago, mm-hmm. and again, for our listeners, Matt does incredible landscape paintings, great variety, um, and in a technique, I would say, that is traditional, yet has a very modern kind of warm feeling. Oh, like, you know, the, what I'm saying is it's accessible. Yeah. So I know I respond to them emotionally as well as visually, but I also like the fact that it's classic, right? right. There's, I mean, you don't have, like, people are purple, and, no. and then there's a giant <laughs> butterfly for no reason right. that's... You know, you know, I'm trying desperately to make things look like things. Yes, yeah, so you actually like it's it's reality based. Yeah. So just say a little bit about that, like yeah. how you got started and why why yeah. that drew you. Not, right. Pardon the pun, even though it's not because it's not <laughs> about fun. painting. Right. <laughs> um, I always like to draw, um, always, and uh, always sketched and enjoyed it, but you know struggled with all the same things that people who, who draw you like. It always ends up the wrong size, or I work really hard on some details and it fails and. Um, so I kind of set it aside. I, I've always had sketchbooks around, but they're filled with not that great sketches. Occasionally, really good ones. Like I, I remember we looked back at a sketchbook I had when Ellen and I, my wife and I, got married 19 years ago, and we had these puppies that were in our house, and I sketched them, and they actually they're pretty solid, you know. Yeah, like that's I don't cool. know, and so but it would be like a one-off. It's like one out of a hundred sketches would be decent, um, and then to to make a long story longer. So I was really <laughs> really into gardening. Um, and I uh, would read books about garden design, and there's this famous English landscape designer called uh, Gertrude Jekyll, and she did, she invented the cottage garden, which oh, uh, wow. you know, was like that quintessential English land. And her story was that she was a painter who um, started to lose her eyesight and got into gardening. And oh. so her uh, knowledge about composition, design, color theory... All came from and fine art. From painting. Right. And then she applied it to gardening and just blew everybody's socks off with it. And so I was like, well, maybe I should learn. <laughs> so I went in reverse and was like, maybe I can learn how to paint and that would help me understand com- composition, design, right. those kind of things. Oh, so I've cool, always Matt. fancied that I would be like a garden designer. 
Oh. So, I don't know. Um, pipe dreams. All we pipe might have dreams, to do like multiple podcasts with you. <laughs> all pipe dreams all the time. But anyway, so I, my, I told, I think, my uh, in-laws and my parents that and got uh, lessons from the same lady for Christmas one year. So together I ended up with a bunch of lessons. Her name's Elizabeth Locke and she's in South Austin and she teaches out of her house. And I, it was oil painting classes and I showed up and I thought I'd be oil painting in color immediately. And she like sits you down with a piece of uh, charcoal and a piece of newsprint and like a bowl and a cup. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit initially put off because it's like I wanted to paint oil and color because I want to be a landscape designer. Um, and, uh, but she talked about, you know, how you're frustrated when you draw something and you put a lot of work into one detail and it's not to scale and then you give up. And I was like, yes, I know yes, that. Yes. And so she taught us how to work large to small. So you start and you get the oh. big shape of the cup and the bowl and, and then you can get your fine details once the big shape is correct. And so we learned very, what I learned later reading other things, which she teaches in a very classical manner, how people have been taught to draw and paint for hundreds of years and it comes from the, the French tradition and so it's like very um, standard issue how all those great French artists like uh, and I'll mispronounce their names and people can do people send angry notes to yes so. but usually it's because I've done something wrong so, <laughs> so the, they'll just the blame me just blame me like uh, Jerome and David mm-hmm. I don't know how you say it with a French accent but like these class, classical French French draftsmen that that's how they taught people how to do that. And so I just lucked into it. You know, it just happened that that's where my uh, in-laws and my parents bought lessons. And so she's uh, really great. I'd recommend her strongly uh, if anybody's listening and into art. Um, and so she does a, a, a line course where you draw still life in line and then you move into, uh, she calls it tone, other people call it value. But basically mm. uh, what makes something have three-dimensionality is how light shines on it. And so we work on light and dark and then she adds in color. Um, and I remember one time telling her, I think I'd like to get outdoors and do landscapes and gardens. And I remember her being like, oh, please don't try that yet. Yeah, you know, yes. I felt like, <laughs> like Luke Skywalker with Yoda, like, you're not ready. You're not ready for that. <laughs> She's you're like, oh, ready. God, no, no, don't do this. Please, and if you do, don't bring me what you've made. I don't yeah, want to see it. Don't say my name. Don't, don't say that it. I'm your teacher. <laughs> uh, but she did turn me on to, like, a, one of the famous books on landscape painting. And then... Um, which, which book is that? It, that is uh, Carlson's Guide to Landscape Painting. Okay. And she said that when she was learning that she had a professor tell her to like uh, read that book out loud to herself on a tape recorder and then listen to that which seems like a crazy way to learn something but he was I think like a Swedish immigrant so it's a really clumsily written book but it's just jam-packed full of exactly what you need to be a good landscape painter so every time I pick it up I'll read something and it's like I didn't, the last time I read it, I had no framework to hang that information on, so I just would drop. But this time I have like a place to put it, and it's like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I get it now. So, yeah, and the rest of it's just been. Um, and I, you paint, what's that term? You paint outdoors? Yeah, so they call it plein air, which plein is a French term for just in fresh open air. Right. Um, yeah, and so, and people get pretty worked up about a, like a plein air piece if it's finished in one shot, and that's an Italian term, a la prima. Um, but I don't try too hard to finish my stuff and I'm okay if I bring it back and work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and lately I've been trying to do like, um, I bought a, this cool old paint box that fits in a backpack that I can carry around and it has a slot for 12 by 16, um, panels. So I've been painting a lot of 12 by 16. We've heard about this. Yeah. We've heard about this on Instagram. There. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I bring those back. So I paint a lot of 12 by 16. So I bring those back and, and, uh, we built a studio at my house. Um, this, oh, cool. um, uh, spring and summer, I guess. 
Um, and so now I have a place with a big easel to stretch big canvases and make. I don't know, one day I'm going to have like every wall of every house, clinic, everything I own will be covered in some painting. I hope but, so. We yeah. hope, I, hope, I hope our walls are covered soon too. <laughs> we really like your paintings, my well, husband thanks. and I. So, yeah. And that's saying a lot because we're, we're, we're kind of weirdly picky even though we aren't what I would say artistic types necessarily. Like we don't, we don't collect art. Right. Um, but there's something about your work that re we've never said to a real artist, we'd like to get some of your paintings on our walls. Yeah. So there, there's, there's one that's related to Tom, but that doesn't count. And we actually, we actually bought his painting from another site. So it doesn't count, <laughs> right? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's just, uh, I find your work very, I find it interesting, but also just it moves me because it draws you in with the warmth and the color tones. But again, it has that classical feel. Yeah, and then, cool. of course, you're painting things that I find very appealing. You know, local scenery, right. but you always put something else in there. Right. And so I just commend you on that. Well, thanks. You're welcome. It's so much fun. I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, and if I, it shows. If I could paint professionally, uh, I would probably. But and and <laughs> of, of all of your I don't activities isn't the right word, your passions, what if you could pick one thing, if... if if the universe said to you, okay, right. it's down I, to one thing, what thing would you concentrate on? Oh, that's a good question. I know. I can't paint all day and do stand-up at night. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So. I, that would be my dream world. Um, okay. It, but, uh, you know, and I love, I don't want to sound ungrateful for being an equine veteran. Oh, I no. love working with horses, and I um, love what, I'm very thankful that I've focused on the dentistry and so grateful for growing Austin equine. Um, I think if I did either, if I w really did paint all day and, and did stand up at night, what I would miss most is I love, um, this sounds so corny, but um, I like just having all our people on our staff. Yes. I can remember when Damon and I were together, and we were uh, I, we were sharing a truck, so we never we would meet each other in a parking lot and trade right. the pager in the truck. Right. And that was my human interaction with a non-client for the day. And uh, it was when I'd gotten a box set of scrubs. You remember that TV yes, show? Yes, yes. And um, I... Uh, not only love the TV show for the humor, but it actually made me sad inside that I didn't have a group colleagues. of coworkers and right. colleagues and friends and laughing and like growing together and all from the highs to the lows. So uh, it was one day, you know, five or six years ago, that I realized, oh, we made our own scrubs. Oh, that's really cool. We have our own group of kind we of really broken, did. crazy people right, that, right, that all that interact well together. So, so I wouldn't want to give that up. No. Uh, long story short, but. <laughs> right, right. But if I could paint all day and then go tell Comedy. jokes at night, although you know the, you don't get much feedback from painting. Um, people will look at paintings and, and say you know really nice things like you said, but a lot of times people just look at it and be like, oh okay, you know whatever. Right. But when you tell a joke on a stage in front of a group of people that's actually listening, Instant. they all laugh and it feels really good. It feels really good. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a top you know top, it's a good it's feeling. It's a good feeling. <laughs> it's an endorphin rush. It's it hard totally. to beat. I so, can totally see that. Yeah. So are you ready for me to bring it all together? Bring this is it all a big, together. This is, right. a big, this is the big interviewer moment. I'm okay. feeling the pressure now. Um, but all of the things that you said about how you got into equine veterinary medicine, where you really didn't grow up with horses, right. and then how you maybe saw a situation when you were working with horses and people, how humor is a way to kind of 
just de-escalate things. It kind of makes the job easier. Right. And then we didn't really get into gardening because I can't, I can't give you four hours to go into that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the time. gardening, which, was, which I think was probably your main outlet and passion for a long time yeah, before those other yeah, things, absolutely. that you looked at that and you were like, well, maybe I should become a painter mm -hmm. so that I could become a better gardener and designer because I have right. this dream. So what I've noticed about all of that is that you have like the classic creative mind where you come into something from a slightly different angle like the horses like okay i want to do i want to kill this guy and get his job but <laughs> right. since that's not happening right. because of his whole like he has he's part of the market on, on, yeah. <laughs> on elk stuff or whatever right. it was so you see the horses but you see it from an entirely different perspective so it opens up this other element to you that draws you in and then something else comes into it so your natural humor then you're like hey we need to kind of put people at ease so that yeah. the horses will be at ease because I've noticed that this is how horses respond to things, even though I'm not going to give you some stuffy lecture about <laughs> it. It's just how I've survived as yeah. a non-horse person. And then the next iteration is in my current passion of gardening, I'd like to get to the next level and mm. here's an opportunity. And then each of those things, you take them and you study them from different angles. So you don't just go, I like comedy and stuff. Right. Like you <laughs> actually start to do it, you practice it, you study it. And then you you make it where you want it to be in your life. You achieve a form of mastery. And the same with the dentistry. So, and you're just a funny, cool person. <laughs> so, but I really like that about you. That kind of spiraling of the different creative approaches and how it all. It's to me, it's all very related. Even though people will go, wow, painting and gardening and dentistry and horses and right. like, what is that? Yeah, but to me, because yeah. you know, I've known you for a long time right. and I see how you are with the horses, but also this kind of whole person. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to interview you. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for being on the show, Matt. Yeah, really absolutely. appreciate it. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Matt Evans. If you'd like to follow his adventures in landscape painting, please go to his Instagram account, Evans Paintings and Stuff. If you'd like to follow his career as a veterinarian, please visit Austin Equine Hospital's website at austinequine.com or their Instagram account, also Austin Equine. Finally, if you live in Austin and you would like to help Matt become the funniest person in Austin, Texas, which is an annual competition here, he will be competing at the Cap City Comedy Club on April 16th at 8 p.m. So please come by, cheer him on, and wish him well in his quest to become the funniest person in Austin. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.